Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It is, in some ways, quite straightforward to understand depression, really. So many of us will have had a pet that's been very ill at some point. Or we've all got a picture in our mind of a wounded animal making its way off to a cave and curling up in a corner. Now, this is a behavior set, an instinctive behavior set called the sickness response. And it demotivates the animal. At the core, we're like a sick animal. And often a big part of the process of coming out of depression is to systematically disobey that instinct. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. And this show is about upgrading our mind, our energy and our understanding of how we can live life to our fullest potential. Over the next few weeks, I'm interviewing thought leaders, scientists, nutritionists and experts to share tips and tricks for how we can shed the old and step into the new. I hope you join me on the journey. If you follow me on Instagram, you may have seen me post one of my favorite milks, Hemp and Oat Milk by Good Hemp. It is not only delicious, but I am obsessed in all honesty. It's not only delicious, but the health benefits of hemp are phenomenal and growing hemp is safe for the planet too. Currently, over a quarter of greenhouse emissions come from food, which is extremely worrying for obvious reasons. Good Hemp are on a mission to reverse this though, because they believe all food and drink should be fully sustainable. They like to say, sow and grow more hemp for the planet, eat and drink more hemp for you, because they believe you shouldn't have to compromise on either taste or health. Down at Good Hemp's farm in Devon, they make a whole load of different products from hemp, including plant-based hemp milks, as I just mentioned, protein powders, oils, and CBD, which you can order straight from their website to your door. So do check out this incredible company that is supporting the planet and our health. Head to goodhemp.com. And as mentioned, their oat and hemp milk is extremely good, along with many other products. 
Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Morris, who I really enjoyed speaking to. Dr. Andrew has spent decades as a GP doctor working for the National Health Service in England, but 15 years ago, he started learning about the human givens approach alongside his clinical practice, which is a therapy that takes a truly biopsychosocial approach towards emotional and mental well-being. And in this chat, he explains what that means. I first learned about human givens from my mother who studied the approach too. And I honestly think it's one of the best frameworks to better understanding our emotional needs as humans. In this episode, we dive into the brain and body connection. We discuss how physical factors can create emotional and mental challenges and how we can alleviate suffering through marrying the two back up. Dr. Andrew sifts the sense from the nonsense, making it easier to think clearly about how our brain and body work together. You can find Andrew's courses on the Human Givens website. I'll put a link in the show notes. He runs day courses which are jam-packed full of learning, and I couldn't recommend them more. As Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we can do better. And I really think you couldn't find a more inspirational and thorough teacher as Andrew. I hope you enjoyed this episode. What is your favorite quote you return to often? Oh, it's a quote that I came across actually on my honeymoon. We were up in the Lake District a rather long time ago now, and we went to um, John Ruskin's house. It was very interesting in all sorts of ways, but the thing that stuck with me was a saying of his, which is, there's no wealth but life. Being alive and being healthy is the most fundamental wealth that we have, or any other wealth that we might acquire is meaningless without that, which I think is really important to remember, yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? (laughs) Oh, gosh, this is something that I, I discovered early and I need to keep rediscovering in my life, which is that maybe these are the good old days. Right now, you may look back on this time. You may think that things are dreadful. Uh, But you may look back on it and actually think, actually, those were good old days. And of course, there's always this glow that goes around the past for most of us. But it's often the case that we don't necessarily appreciate what's good in the present. And this is something I need to remind myself of all the time. It's that now may be good in all sorts of ways that may be clearer later than they are now. (laughs) That's a really nice thought that we could be living the good old days right now. And how do you define happiness? Oh gosh, I try not to. (laughs) I try not to define it because I think the definitions that we tend to carry in our culture are a wee bit problematic, actually. And I think this is probably true biologically, the feeling of happiness, of reward, uh, that sort of endorphin feeling. That is very much the way that we're evolved to reward ourselves for meeting our needs. And um, because of the complexity of human beings, complexity of the technologies and the cultures that we create, we can often end up chasing that feeling in strange and unhelpful places. But I think ultimately that feeling comes from knowing that you've done something that's met a a profound need. Mm. I also really love your point in terms of, you know, definitions are so limiting. We then suddenly start to think there's something wrong with us or something wrong with the world, when actually if we just change the meaning or change the definition, suddenly there is nothing wrong. Yeah. So I'm really uh, interested, why do you think the traditional way to health was limited? And why did you start exploring outside the realms of conventional medicine? 
that foray into the human givens was definitely part of my um, perennial sense that there was more to health and health care than the traditional model. You know, so when I saw the flyer back in 2001 in my uh, surgery intray, you know, there was actually a course on depression in Bristol. And I went along to that. It was incredibly valuable learning. But I think I've always been on the hunt for ideas outside of medicine. I think I had a sense uh, there was more than one way of looking at the world. And and I think that was very much accentuated by the the time that I spent before I qualified doing history of medicine. So the traditional way to health, I think the conventional model is undergoing quite a lot of revision at the moment. I think there's a, a broad movement. You see it in things like the social prescribing movement and the lifestyle medicine movement and all of that. There's lots of uh, the integrative health movement. There are lots of people working to try and broaden the agenda. But I think there's a sense that by focusing, we've developed these very powerful tools in Western medicine for focusing down on the smallest available unit of analysis, you know, the molecule, the gene. And that's been very powerful and very useful. It's yielded a huge amount of health technology, lots of techniques, huge amounts of insight. But I think there's been for a very long time a sense that we also need to do something else that looks more like synthesis, which is looking at interconnections, looking at health as much as we look at illness, rather than just looking at what's broken about the person. And it's an individual that's broken. I think that traditional medical systems, it's not to say they're better, uh, many would argue that they're significantly worse. <laughs> but they what they've got is the sense that life arises out of a balance, that it's dynamic, that it's not just about the individual, there's a lot about the environment. And that a lot of those systems rest on helping the person themselves self-correct, self-balance. That idea of what's interesting about our current moment is that there's loads and loads of scientific data now that supports is beginning to support a vision of health as something that an organism can do for itself. You know, so if we can meet certain conditions, so in human givens terms, if we can meet our needs in balance, we tend to get health. Have you ever found a conflict then as you kind of started to take more of a holistic approach to health? Did you ever find a conflict in the way that you were learning, you know, health traditionally? I would say I've found less and less of a conflict as time has gone on because there's this growing body of, of psychological research, sociological research, um, basic medical research, research in areas around nutrition. We're, I think we're coming to appreciate the interconnectedness of human beings, both within ourselves and the interconnections that we're dependent on for our health outside of the individual. And the nice thing about the last 20 years is that that has looked more and more and more scientific. Um, for many years, I was fortunate to work with a lovely team of doctors, Bristol Medical School, um, Professor Trevor Thompson, um, as he has now devised this course, Whole Person Care. And when we set out doing that, teaching that course in the very early 2000s, there was some scientific data, but it was quite a lot driven by ideas and values. And what was fascinating was that over the 16 years that I was involved in teaching that course, it just became more and more of a scientific topic. <laughs> in a lot of ways, we've got a great opportunity now to talk about these things from within the language of science, which is nice. 
So you write much of our collective thinking and advice about health is contradictory and distorted by vested (laughs) interests and preconception. What do you mean by this? We carry around lots of preconceptions. Probably the most useful one to talk about is this idea that's deeply, deeply embedded in our culture and our language that the mind and the body are separate. It's got very old roots, but it's become very deeply enthroned in sort of Western scientific thinking. Another common one that is a legacy of the medical model that we've been running for the last couple of hundred years is that there's this idea that there's a specific brokenness which can be fixed with a specific fix, you know, a pill for every ill. Those sorts of preconceptions get in people's way sometimes. But I think preconceptions like that are problematic. And in terms of vested interests, gosh, that really shows up in a few ways, the funding that goes into science is driven either quite immediately or more in the background by the quest for novel targets for pharmaceuticals. Um, so there's a there's quite a big skew in the funding, and that's just because of the economics, I think. Um, there's a lot of producer interest behind the noise and angst and confusion uh, around the topic of food and health. Because because producers have got products to market and they spend their PR budgets well, I think. <laughs> so those are the sorts of things that I meant in that little uh, in that little description, I suppose. Yeah, I just think it's really important. I think to kind of have these small reminders that not everyone is working for our best interest, and there are economics at play. Um, so. I think this is, you know, part of the reason, I guess, why I think your course is so interesting, even for people that don't have a medical background, because, you know, definitely what's changed my life and my health is taking it upon myself to educate myself about how on earth, you know, my human biology works. And so I would just love to, first of all, probably ask you a very simple question, but what is the mind-body connection and how are they connected? Aha. Well, I'll give two separate answers. (laughs) The first answer is an odd one. There is no mind-body disconnect. And so the mind-body connection is effectively us remembering that there isn't a divide. It's actually a verb. (laughs) We need to constantly be aware of and revisit and understand the fact that these aren't separate entities. You can see how we've got into this way of imagining that we are because our thoughts are very intangible you know you can't touch a dream or a, or or an imagination you you know they are there's there's clearly an intangible aspect to our experience of being alive and then there are very tangible bits like you know you can feel your fingers against each other you can slap your thighs <laughs> you're reassuringly solid so you can see how we get there but actually when you start to get into the detail of the body they're they're connected they're they're always present. And, and it, we only need to reflect on how dominated our thinking will be by any strong emotion or instinctive response. You know, if we're hungry, we're really hungry. Our thinking is very organized around finding the next meal. I mean, genuine, genuine hunger. If we're in love, all we can think of is the person we're in love with. If we're very angry, all we can think of is why we're right and the other person's wrong. So. When you look at what emotions are, there are various ways of defining emotions, but there's clearly a whole function in there whereby what the organism is expecting to happen next engenders a whole shift in the way the 
our whole organism's oriented. The classic one that everyone knows about is fight or flight. If we read a situation and expect a threat, then our whole physiology, in other words, the whole of the way our body is working and configured, the heart rate, blood pressure, muscle tone, different hormones, you know, the different blood flow to different parts of the brain. Different parts of the brain are priv more privileged in their action. You become less able to reason, for instance. You tend to lose that capacity to stand back, reflect, think broadly. It's very focused down. So when we look at emotional states, you can't really draw a line. You know, if you go into the neuroanatomy of it, which little tiny few microns wide synapse, you know, between one nerve cell and another, are you going to choose to put your mind-body divide at? There's two junctions between that nerve cell bringing information up from your guts, as it were, and the part of your brain that the neuropsychologist will say is the part where you do your independent reasoning and thinking. So I'm thinking, where, which of these two tiny microscopic gaps are we going to stick the border guard on and say, here's the dividing point between the mind and the body? Because, of course, that space isn't really a separation. It's a connection in itself. It's designed to communicate information. What you just said is so interesting when it comes to talking about the relationship between the physical body and depression, because when we think about mental health, I think we do just think about those synapses in the brain. And, you know, as a consequence, you know, we think that, you know, medication to stimulate those synapses in the brain is the like, only route to managing depression. But I guess the when you consider that brain body connection, you're thinking all of these things in, are mm. interacting. I'd love for you to kind of explain further this relationship between physical body and depression? I mean, it is in some ways quite straightforward to understand depression really, but fundamentally if I'm with a patient who's depressed, often a point that I'll often visit early in the conversation if I've got permission to sort of explain the syndrome and what's going on, is to help people use their imagination to imagine a sick animal. So many of us will have had a pet that's been very ill at some point, or we've all got a picture in our mind of a wounded animal making its way off to a cave and curling up in a corner. Now, this is um, a behavior set, an instinctive behavior set called the sickness response or sickness behavior. And it demotivates the animal. There's often a big change in appetite, big change in the sleep cycle. So there's this suite of changes. And we know that in nature, animals would get this triggered mainly by two things, infection or injury. And the response in the body to those challenges involves inflammation. So some of that inflammation in the body gets reflected in the, in the brain. And it looks as if what's happening is when the brain is exposed to that low level inflammation, it will tend to go into this sickness behavior, this withdrawal response. And what's happening in depression is that, that we've got this mild inflammation going on but we, we haven't had a woolly mammoth stand on our leg. We haven't got double pneumonia or the flu. What's actually happened is we've got our brain sore, usually by ongoing emotional arousal. And there are various ways that can happen. I mean, sometimes people get depressed after they've had an infection or after an operation, but more commonly, life gets difficult, our needs are not being met in balance. We go into a stress response and part of the biology of that stress response is that various changes 
in our physiology and the way we're sleeping, we end up with a sore brain. That's the bottom line. <laughs> and that then triggers off this idea that, I'm, you know, you'll hear people when they've become depressed, they'll describe gradually dropping out activities that they used to do. And that's the withdrawal response. That's the animal curling up in the cave. The problem is that this solution is not a solution to the problem you've got. In fact, it almost is a recipe for the problem. Because <laughs> if you see, if we demotivate ourselves and we stop doing the things that give our life purpose and meaning and remind us of who we are and all the rest of that, following that withdrawal response, that sickness response, is pretty much a recipe for depression in itself. And so there's this vicious cycle. We get caught up in, in our stress responses. We drive our body into this somewhat sore, low-grade chronic inflammation that's associated with the stress. And then there's this other problem where we become demotivated. So we're no longer doing the things that would have helped us to stay out of the depression. <laughs> in some ways, it's a simple condition. Uh, it's never the same twice. Everyone has their own journey through this state. But at, the, at core, we're like a sick animal. Um, and often a big part of the process of coming out of depression is to systematically disobey that instinct. Would you say, we, you know, we're all vulnerable? Yeah, because we're all equipped with the capacity to go, I'm mortally ill here. And what I must do is lie down and do nothing. Mm. You know, the point is that when that withdrawal response goes off, when you've got a really, really nasty infection on board, you don't worry about why you feel demotivated. And of course, the, the, the demotivation that arises when we're depressed, um, because it's going off out of context, it doesn't, it, in some ways, it doesn't make sense. We can begin to have all sorts of further upsetting thoughts like, you know, what's the matter with me? Am I going mad? You know, oh God, I'm useless. And of course, our poor old emotional self is reading out what we're imagining and hearing in our mind's ear and seeing in our mind's eye as if it was all real emotional arousal continues the whole thing keeps itself going and what are the easiest steps that you've seen that kind of lift us out of of being kind of sick lamb sickness response well it's interesting i think it varies so much from person to person okay so that's where it's really important not to fall into the trap of thinking there's a stock answer to a complex problem like this mm. because we are all different and in the end you've got a state of demotivation to deal with and so you need to pick the things that make sense to you if you're the person who's suffering with depression or you need to help your client your patient your friend choose the things that are going to be make most sense to them that they can most immediately engage with and uh, it will vary from person to person but broadly speaking the things that are going to tend to help are helping the person find their innate capacity to calm down a big part of that is going to be the breath the breath is the most direct way we have of stimulating the innate relaxation system but there are many other ways of relaxing so helping the person to calm down uh, some people need help with their sleep because the sleep is a big part of how we get into the sore and sorry state. Sometimes people need sleep hygiene help. Sometimes they need to do the relaxation at night so they can sleep or whatever it is. Um, helping people to re-engage with key activities is often a big thing. It's going to vary so much from person to person. But a big thing that we're starting to appreciate is that a higher quality diet with plenty of unprocessed plant foods in it and uh, missing out the processed and uh, what we tend to recognize as junk foods, that's going to tend to be associated with better emotional health. 
So there's lots of ways, and exercise is another big one. It it's de-arouses the system, it helps us sleep at night, it gets us active again. It's you know, there are lots and lots of strategies uh, that we can pursue with depression. In a way, we're almost spoiled for choice. And of course, we have always got medicine, but what I find is that given given a set of choices. <laughs> I find that most of my patients, in, in even just in general practice as such, are very pleased to try something else first, often. Um, people don't want to go on medication. If they're given another route, they'll often explore that first. What are your thoughts on supplements? Because I, for example, I, I guess I probably didn't realize I was really, really low um, on iron because I don't eat meat. And mm. then actually saw a huge change in my emotional health and mood since I kind of started supplementing iron. What are your thoughts on, you know, supplementation when it comes to, I guess, like food and emotional well-being? Um, I think that it's a really, really naughty area. And I'm fascinated to hear you share that story uh, because in a way that goes counter to what my sort of conventional training would lead me to suspect. You know, if you were anemic, I could understand. So what I find is that people's, People's experiences with these things are very variegated. Of course, what we have to remember all the time, even with very conventional, well-proven treatments, is that there is also always a massive effect that comes when we know we're doing something to help ourselves. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it may well be that, that there was a direct effect of the eye, but it's also very likely that having your brain having... I mean, I'm, I'm just picking up this example. I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm super open to think that this could just be pure placebo and like like a couple of supplements for a week have actually had no impact whatsoever. Well, I think I think that there is, the placebo effect is real. It's, it's omnipresent and it's triggered by an, a confident expectation of improvement. If the meaning of the situation to you is, I'm doing something to help myself and I'm going to get better, then that will tend to be what's happening. Uh, because the physiology and the expectation sort of equipment that we have in our brains are intimately connected in lots and lots of ways. So yeah. who knows who knows about your iron? Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't like to say for, for, for sure one way or the other, but I think that um, I suspect that more supplements are sold than uh, for which we could demonstrate definite benefit. And I think the only ones that are unequivocally sort of recommended, I think in the Northern Hemisphere, it's probably smart if you can afford it to take vitamin D in the winter months. If you are a vegan, you should certainly be taking vitamin B12. But aside from that, it's very hard to make any other recommendations, even in the apparently clear-cut area of essential fatty acids, uh, the essential omega-3 fatty acids. But um, outside of those few examples, it's not or a, a demonstrated deficiency. You know, uh, my iron stores are low and therefore I should, of course, replenish the stores. I think it's always worth being genuinely skeptical in a positive way about whether or not one needs a supplement. <laughs> you know, I think a couple of times in this interview, this point has come up, which is have your wits about you. Even if you hear mm. someone on a podcast or a news article saying, well, this helped me, just know that could just be that person. <laughs> I think we need to keep an open mind. We need to also not fall into the trap of being routinely cynical <laughs> and negative. And it's all about you know, what was the opportunity cost? Did did this cost you money you didn't have? Did it stop you from doing something that would have worked better or more? This is one of the great things that I'd learned through the human given system was, you know, the dangers of black and white thinking, of being overly categoric, 
But the other point you've raised that this this issue of you know having our wits about us is that you've reminded me of something that I, I often get round to saying, which is that if we look at the amount of wit, intelligence, cultural debt, cultural memory that a typical hunter-gatherer society has to have in order to meet its basic physical needs in the environment, to get a secure, safe food supply in the wilderness, to, to find shelter, to stay safe from predators. If you look at the amount of skill and knowledge that those people require, if we compare that to the slightly, if I can say so, I mean, I'm speaking also for myself, I don't want to be pejorative, but we're a bit gormless, aren't we? We saunter around the supermarket, it's safe in the knowledge that everything there is not going to make us keel over. We don't apparently need a depth of knowledge, but of course we do. <laughs> if we do actually require a depth of knowledge about what's going to support our health best. But I think the, the key point is that we do need our wits about us. <laughs> yeah. On the subject of food, I was really interested when I was reading about how all food can be addictive in some way. And I would love your thoughts on this because obviously you uh, go into far more detail in this brilliant course. How can we be addicted to food? Uh, yes. And so there's a really nice model, which actually is becoming more and more um, mainstream, actually, over the last 20 years. But the human givens teaching has always been that addictions are best viewed th through this nice formulation, which is that anything that can give us a pleasure sensation, a pleasure reward, can become an addiction. But there's a precondition for that which is that our emotional needs are not being met in balance. So when our emotional needs are not being met in balance, we don't feel safe enough, or we, we lack a sense of purpose or meaning in our life, if, we, if we're unable to exchange enough attention or have a sense of community, or we lack an intimate relationship, or we lack a feeling of having sufficient control, all of these fundamental emotional needs that we identify. You know, if, you, if you're not able to meet those emotional needs in balance, then as a kind of way of compensating for the stress of that, Anything that brings us pleasure can become an addiction. And then, of course, on top of that, some things are inherently more prone to be addictive than others. Could it be like drinking orange juice? Yeah, it can be quite random, but anything that we associate with pleasure. But having said that, with food, there is definitely a signal. The well-conducted research on this, and the best study I've come across, got people using a, a proper rating scale for addictiveness, using basic parameters of addictive behavior measuring people's addictive relationship to a variety of foods. And what was very striking, the, the strongest signal in that data was that processed foods. <laughs> but all of the processed foods were all grouped at the top of the, of the ranking, and the unprocessed foods were all at the bottom. It's literally half and half like that. And then clustering in amongst that, but not completely overlapped with it, but the further you went up the table, the more likely the food was to be fatty and or sweet and or salty. I mean, eating's pleasurable. It's a fundamental need to eat. So our body rewards us. It gives us a sense of reward. It's sort of relaxing because it's stimulating that, that sort of more relaxing side of the automatic nervous system. And then we've engineered foods to be things that were highly valuable in nature, finding something salty, finding something sweet, finding something fatty. Good news. Hooray, you know, today's a bonanza day. Let's eat as much of this as we can because the next coming time may be lean times. Um, so we're, we, we tend to respond to these foods in a slightly uncontrolled way. 
And that is reflected in these addictiveness scales. Before we go on the course, I mean, we've just honestly probably touched upon about 5%. You also talk about many of the routes to improve our well-being in a 360 manner. What would you say is one thing to leave listeners with um, in terms of balancing your well-being? What would you say one of your favorite tips is? I mean, one of the key things is that before all else fails, calm down. <laughs> you know, learning learning to calm yourself, It's a, for many of us, it's a lifelong journey. You know, we're still on that road. But the more we can do that, I think the better off we are. I would say, I just, you know, almost looping back to this, I was thinking about if anyone's listening to this that, that has got issues around food, you know, start calm, you know, try and find a point of calm before you eat, uh, if you can. Uh, and then I would also say, just be careful where you're going with your imagination. The imagination is a powerful tool, but we can use it to solve problems and invent amazing things, but we can also use it to make ourselves really, really unhappy. Mm. Um, because our emotional systems responding to the contents of our imagination, almost as if those things were really happening and listen and learn always be prepared to change your ideas but i think the top one would be before all else fails find some calm <laughs> oh well thank you so much um this has just been absolutely brilliant i honestly would love to have you back on to go further into detail about the human givens approach because i think it'd be vital information for people to learn more about so if you are open we would love to have you back on Yes, let's see if we can make that happen. <laughs> That'd be great. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.